for Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's election day in Chicago. A staggering 14 candidates hope to become the next mayor. A few months ago, there were even more candidates in the running. There were 17. It's inevitable that the race will end in a runoff. Yet despite all the choices, many people are not really satisfied with their pick. There may be a bundle of candidates you don't like, but there's probably a bundle of candidates that seem okay, but all sound the same. Fortunately, lots of places have reformed their electoral systems with this in mind. Cities like Minneapolis, Oakland, San Francisco, and even the state of Maine have adopted what's called ranked choice voting. So instead of choosing one candidate who's your favorite, you can rank who you like uh, from most to least. Last fall during the midterm election, I discussed the concept with two people. Robert Middlecoff is a lead organizer and founder of Fair Vote Illinois. It advocates for ranked choice voting. And Ruth Greenwood, she's a senior legal counsel for voting rights and redistricting with the Campaign Legal Center. Ruth's originally from Australia, where they've used ranked choice voting for a long time. Since 1924, actually it was used earlier in the small state of Tasmania, but federally we've been using it forever, my whole lifetime, my parents' whole lifetimes. Well, you seem well-versed in what this is. Uh, What is ranked choice voting? Yeah, I mean, from a voter's perspective, it's really straightforward. You turn up to the polls and you decide who you like the most and give them a one, who you like the next most and give them a two, and then so on down to however many candidates there are. Um, On the back end, when you count them, it gets a little more difficult. You basically work out who has the the lowest amount of votes, remove their votes and redistribute them to the number twos. You know, so if somebody gets a very small amount, then whoever they preferred second. Um, a really nice way to think about it is, um, I guess it's going back a ways now, but in the Bush v. Gore election in Florida, um, there are a lot of people that voted for Ralph Nader. If those voters had been able to choose number two, either Gore or Bush, then those votes could have been redistributed. Uh, and you end up getting the candidate that is the most preferred by the most number of people. Some people refer to it as an instant instant runoff. It is like an instant runoff. Right. And actually, I guess here in Chicago, uh, that's easier to understand, right? As you mentioned with the mayoral election, um, we're going to end up just taking the top two people and go through to April and just have them run against each other. If you voted, you know, one through 17, instantly you could cut up those numbers and work out who was the most preferred candidate. Um, Robert, uh, why did you want to get interested in this? What are you in real life? You, you're, 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 you became the lead organizer of Fairvoit in Illinois, but you have a real day job. You don't have to get involved with this issue. Why would you do it? Sure. Uh, I'm just a concerned citizen, and I'm originally from Florida, actually, and I was there in 2000 uh, d- during Bush v. Gore. And, uh, you know, since then, I've just become more frustrated with politics, as many people in my generation are. And moving to Illinois, I realized, wow, I've lost a lot of political power. Uh, you know, here we are a pretty blue state. Florida's really purple. And as I saw a lot of these elections happen where, uh, you know, you don't have a lot of choices, things are decided by money, and, and I'm just frustrated. And I think a lot of people in my generation are just exhausted. Why is ranked choice voting a good solution in your mind? Well, I think that it solves a lot of different problems like spoiler candidates where you have three candidates in a race and one candidate can come in and split the vote between two factions and then you get a 
uh, a winner with maybe 20, 30% of the vote who's not as popular. Um, another thing is that it really preserves a lot of some of our system is that you can go as a voter and just vote for one candidate like in the old system. But if you have a bunch of different preferences, you're not happy with that first choice or not happy with the leading candidate, then you can choose second, third or fourth choices. And, and the other thing is that uh, it's used in other places. And this is a real reform. It's not a radical idea. And it's happening. Yeah, as, a, as an Australian, I should say when I go to vote, um, I knew that my vote would be distributed if my first person didn't get elected. So it, I lived in a district where my candidate um, wasn't going to get elected but I from the major party, but I wanted them to know that I didn't agree with them on certain issues. And I felt like I could pick out the party that had the particular issue I cared about. So one of them was disability education for children. I had a friend running. So I could put them number one and then the candidate would know they had my number two and they could see where the one had come from. I felt like I could express myself a little more at the polls rather than just up or down, do I like you or not? It, it changes your strategic voting options. You right. don't feel like you have to vote with the candidate that you, you should because they're going to win. Right. I mean, last time, all the people that voted you know, for Jill Stein and Gary Johnson got <laughs> shamed in public for having you know, perverted the, the course of the election. But if they really liked those candidates, that's great. They should be able to put number two for one of or, or three for one of the major party candidates. We're talking about ranked choice voting and what it would bring to our elections if we use it more often in this country. Uh, I wanted to talk about some of the subtler things in which it solves, which people may not think about. Um, there are studies that say that it encourages candidates to be less negative. Can you explain how that could be, Ruth? Yeah, I mean, uh, I've spoken with one of the people who ran in Minnesota, um, in in Minneapolis, and she said she realized that she had to go to voters and say, well, I may not get your number one, but what about number two? And so instead of completely writing off people and saying, well, you know, that's an area that I'm never going to get a vote from, she had to be a little bit nicer to the people that may vote for her and then the people that maybe won't, but she at least wanted their three or their four. And so everybody is encouraged, I think, to be nice because someone might give them a vote that'll help. Um, instead of just completely writing off half the population that you think won't vote for you. So in the idea of a candidate being nice, that would mean less extreme. You would want to move to the center on you would, on your positions, well, essentially, because you've got to get more of the pie. Well, there's two things. So one of them is you're just nicer when you campaign. But secondly, because you end up being able to select um, amongst a whole series of different candidates, there may be people that would want, say, a Bloomberg-type character who's sort of neither Republican nor Democrat. But at the moment, no one would vote for that on a, well, potentially a presidential election because there's a, you know, an R and a D on the on the ballot. But if you have this ranked choice voting, it's not throwing away your vote to vote for that middle person. And so you do end up getting those middle candidates. It's not that they become more in the middle because of the ranked choice voting. It's that you actually elect those more moderate folk. We're talking about ranked choice voting, and with us is Ruth Greenwood. She's senior legal counsel for voting rights, and Robert Middlecoff. He's a lead organizer and founder of Fair Vote Illinois. In this country, uh, we don't have a lot of elections with multiple candidates. We have a two-party system. Does that mean it's harder to get traction on this idea? I think a lot of people are used to the two-party system. And so to I remember saying this to my boss, Trevor Potter, as the chairman of the um, Campaign Legal Center, and I was explaining it to him, and he said, it's not like wrong or anything, but it's a bit like telling Americans to use the metric system. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> of course it makes sense. <laughs> right, it makes sense, but it's, it's just not what we do. Um, 
Yeah. Right. And the other thing is we have primaries here. And the, the Democratic primary for governor, we had six candidates, and the winner won 45% of the vote. And we have, uh, during primaries, there's always a lot of candidates. Can I add, though, one thing that is really good with ranked choice voting, particularly if you use it with multi-member districts, um, is that it means that you don't need to have residential segregation to get someone elected. So in the city of Chicago, um, we are able to get, you know, um, African-Americans elected from the south side because we're super segregated. Uh, If you move out to the suburbs, though, you have populations that are more integrated on a racial and ethnic basis. And if you were to use ranked choice voting with multi-member districts, so say you have six, you know, trustees for your board – Um, you can actually get more people of color elected to office. And I know that today everybody says that we're having more women and more people of color than ever before. But if you're running in a first-past-the-post system, it's really hard to get elected um, as a minority. Uh, But things like ranked choice voting can actually help with that, which is really important. Very interesting. Uh, We've got a call. Jim in Orland Park, you're on WBEZ. Hi. I just wanted to uh, make a little comment. Uh, I think we'll save a lot of money with ranked choice voting and uh, maybe only have one election instead of a primary and a general election. What do you think? Uh, Robert, how do you how do you save money with ranked choice voting? Yeah, you can. If you think of the mayor's race, we have a runoff in that race, and it costs a lot of money to have that second election. And the other thing that is really uh, sort of distorting in that is that not a lot of people come out to that runoff, so you have fewer people voting, fewer people deciding who our leaders are going to be. Um, and the other really distorting thing that a lot of people don't think about in Chicago is. Sometimes we have some wards will have uh, a runoff for the aldermen. And so those wards with aldermen having a runoff are going to have higher turnout. And those people in those wards are going to have a bigger influence on who their mayor is. And so you have all these distorting effects that come together when you have this second election. So runoffs are distorting. Right. And I know that Iowa next door to us here would be annoyed to get rid of primaries, but it would mean that you wouldn't have these specific little states that have more of a say in certain things. You just have election day. Everybody votes or election month if you have early voting. Everyone at once, the whole country becomes more equal. Keith and Aurora, you're on WBEZ. Hi. I actually think it's a great idea, but while your experts are there, I was wondering if they could say what other folks' criticism of the system may be of the new system, ranked choice voting. Thank you. One thing people say is too complicated. Right. The counting seems complicated, so it's hard to explain the counting. Um, And the other thing is, if you're a person who's currently in power under the current system, um, you don't want it to change. You have worked out how to get elected and stay elected and never never have an opponent, potentially. Um, And so it is hard when you're trying to go to the people in power. When you tell it to people everyday people, like voters, they're like, this is great. Why don't we do this? I I teach election law at Loyola Law School. Um, And if I start out by explaining ranked choice voting with multi-member districts, the rest of the course makes no sense because everybody's like, well, why don't we just do that? You know, that's that's way better. It solves all our problems. All (laughs) right. Here's a caller who's still a little confused. Patricia, you're on WBEZ. Oh, thank you, Jerome. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. I love your show. Um, you know, and the more you're talking, I'm very sorry. I'm getting more confused. I'm 73. I have never not voted. I always vote. I consider myself pretty politically aware, sort of. But um, I, like you mentioned, one thing, I'll give you an example. You said if there are 17 candidates, does that mean like on a questionnaire you'd go, okay, that's my first choice, second, all the way down the line? Um, that, what if I don't how, even know? How far do you go? Do you got to do all 17, Patricia? 
It depends. In America, we don't ever use the compulsory version. So you only have to do one if you want one. If you like two or three people, you can put down two or three, or you can go all the way to 17. In Australia, we have it differently. Actually, in our state elections, you can do as many as you like. But in federal elections, it's not counted unless you vote all the way down the ballot. All right. So most people, they they just do as many as they want. Right. One, two, three, four, something like that. The people that you think might actually get your vote in the end. Um, we've got another call. Uh, William, you're on WBEZ. Hi. Yeah. I have a very interesting topic. I'm curious if you can comment around what is the, the process to change the election laws? And a little bit of what was talked about earlier, it is, is the incumbents having to, to really kind of weigh in and, and um, where has this been successfully transitioned that shows that incumbents are willing to you know, change the election laws? All right, Ruth. I was going to say, William, you're a clever man. (laughs) This is Maine is having a gigantic wrestling match with this thing. Right. So in almost every state, the way that you would do it, and this is from local to state elections, would be through a constitutional amendment to the state. So in Maine, they voted. The whole um, state had a referendum where they decided they wanted to use ranked choice voting for their federal and for their state elections. Then the legislature decided they didn't like that, and so they were able to override that. Um, and then the people decided they didn't like that override, and so they voted again to re-override the override. <laughs> uh, now, in most places, it doesn't quite get that complex. In places like San Francisco and Oakland, they put it on the ballot one time. They say, do you want ranked choice voting? The people voted yes, and then they adopt it. And that would be the same case here in Chicago. You could do a, state, a citywide initiative or a statewide initiative. And Maine had this experience with with its governor's race, and they got Paul LePage a couple governor's races ago. In he had a very like a thirty-some percent of the vote, and he became the mayor. And he's got some pretty wacky views. People might have heard some of his views. He's he's you know he's not a, a regular mainstream guy. I'm from a nonpartisan organization, and I wouldn't want to make comments <laughs> on particular politicians. But um, but I do think that the people of Maine have spoken many times to say that they want ranked choice voting. All right. And we're talking about ranked choice voting with Ruth Greenwood and Robert Middlecoff. And we're going to, to Sam on WBEZ. Hi. Yeah. I was just curious uh, about if you had ever um, I heard about another voting method called um, approval voting, I think, where you have like all the candidates, you just select any ones that you would be fine with voting for, which I heard is also likely to pick, you know, the theoretical Condorcet winner. So I was wondering if you were familiar with that voting method and if you could compare ranked choice voting to approval voting. Yeah, so there's a lot of different methods out there. Um, And the math gets a little tricky depending on how many people you're electing and and what system you're using. But you're right. It is generally a good way. If you went through the 17 candidates and you just said up or down, yes or no, do I like them? You generally, the math should work out that you get the right person. Um, The idea, I guess, behind ranked choice voting is it's a little bit more used, maybe not so much. I mean, it's used in some places in America and certainly around uh, the world. There's also, um, I read a whole book called Gaming the Vote about what is the best mathematical system. And they ended up deciding that the best was like like Yelp ratings, like you just give a five to people that you like. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I don't know. We, we have to see which one we can get. Anything's better than first past the post, basically. Uh, all right. We'll take one more call. Rick, you're on WBEZ. Hi. My question is uh, about the, the uh, ranked choice voting. Has anyone done uh, studies to see if it's going to be more or less easy to be hacked? I'm, I'm concerned about, like, you know, the, the complicated algorithms that you would use in counting the votes. 
and whether or not that's uh, as safe or maybe safer than the current system. Robert? So I, I think one thing to think about, if you implement ranked choice voting, you usually have to upgrade your voting system, and so that's one thing to think about. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't think that it, depending on your security system, it, I don't think it makes a, it better or worse, but there's ways to do it so that it is just as safe as any other system. I mean, in Australia, we still vote with pencil and paper, and that's pretty safe. <laughs> it's hard to, hard to hack that. Maybe the counting mechanisms can be hacked, but uh, you can always go back to the paper. As soon as, soon as we get to blockchain, we'll, we'll be done. <laughs> we're done with everything here. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you, uh, Robert, if you have some ideas about when we can get this in Illinois. Sure. I, I think we're still having conversations about when. I think the earliest would be 2020. But we need people excited about this. You know, a lot of politicians say, well, I think that's a cool idea, but a lot of people don't care about this. And so we need people to make this, you know, their number one or maybe two or three issues that they're talking to people about and excited about. And if we do that, we could absolutely get this done in Illinois. Are there people who are against this, uh, politicians who've come out and said, well, I don't like this idea? I haven't heard anybody in Illinois uh, really campaign uh, against it strongly, but there are ones who are in power and they're like, well, this I got in power this way. I like this system. So there, there's some inertia in the system, but there's definitely a lot of politicians I've talked to who are excited about this. And there are a bunch of places in the United States that have this coming online. They've already made the moves and, and they'll be doing it soon. Oh, I mean, yeah, there are places that have been using it for 10 years. In fact, Cambridge, um, outside of Boston, has been using it for like 40 years. Um, yeah, there's becoming more and more cities. So Santa Fe just voted to adopt it. As I mentioned, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Oakland, Berkeley. Um, you know, hopefully we get beyond big cities and out to all of America. But we'll see. We'll see how we go. And you can get more information about ranked choice voting where, Robert? Uh, fairvoteillinois.org. Fairvoteillinois.org. You've got Facebook pages and all the rest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks very much for joining us. Robert Middlecoff, lead organizer and founder of Fair Vote Illinois, which is advocating for ranked choice voting. And Ruth Greenwood, a senior legal counsel for voting rights and redistricting with the Campaign Legal Center. Thank you both for joining us and talking about ranked choice voting. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you, Jerem. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Perhaps if we had ranked choice voting, fewer people would take the time and effort to select snarky names to write in on their ballot. But every year, people do take the time and effort to register their discontent with a vote for Mickey Mouse or Bill Murray. For Curious City, WBEZ's Monica Eng recently looked into the snarky write-in protest vote and did a nice piece on it. You can look on our website at WBEZ.org for uh, more information about this. But Monica, I was so disappointed to hear that people with their – and so was the person who wrote in and asked the question for Curious City was disappointed that – for posterity, these things should be kept and cataloged. We should be saving these precious snarky discontents for our, our children to read over and future election judges to, to, to laugh at. You know, well, we did for a while, but uh, more than 20 years ago, the Illinois legislature decided that it was not a great use of public money to have people sitting there saying, Mickey Mouse, one vote, Mickey Mouse, two votes, you know, Will Fart, five votes. Uh, that it just, if, if you didn't register to become um, someone who wants to be a writing, you shouldn't get your votes counted. All right. So that's heartbreaking. But it did happen. 
that uh, during this water reclamation write-in candidacy that we had recently, they actually had to really dig in and do them all. That, that was what it was all about. It was this rare gem that I was able to get my hands on, thanks to Jim Allen over at the Chicago Board of Elections, where, yeah, the the, the guy who was the incumbent uh, passed away shortly before the election. So it had to be all write-in, so they had to count all of it. And I got all 20,000-plus uh, results. What are people saying out there? What what time capsule things are, are are coming out? Well, it really is a time capsule. I mean, some throwbacks, but uh, people tell me that like whatever movie or or star is popular at the time. So last November, a lot, there were a lot of Lady Gaga and Bradley Coopers because um, A Star Was Born was really big. Uh, this year, we got a lot of Black Panthers. Stormy Daniels shows up. Uh, people want to put in a vote for her. Um, Tony Sarabia. Yay. I think people were sad that Tony um, was was going to be leaving WBZ, so they, they wanted to write him in. They wanted as, him to be a water reclamation know, district official. You know, it's kind obviously. of his dream. Um, but, you know, on that theme, there there was Abe Vigoda, who was fish in Barney Miller. So, you know, he'd be good in the water. That is absolutely a clever write-in. It and is. we should save that for posterity. If, uh, Aquaman got at least two votes. He would really be able to see what's going on in the water. <laughs> Wonder Woman, I see. There's like themes, and you broke it down on the website into themes, and superheroes and celebrities get a lot of votes. And so do sports figures. Sports figures do well. Cartoon characters, Black Panther, Bozo, Bugs Bunny, Charlie Brown, Daffy Duck, Donald Duck. Uh, Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck usually go kind of neck and neck. Goofy, Mr. Potato Head, Popeye, Skippy, Snoopy, Snoopy the Dog, South Park, Beavis. Beavis got some too. Now, I, you noticed, uh, you sent me to a, a um, article that was on prospect.org that was written in 2013 about write-in candidacies. And I was surprised at the enduring write-in candidacy of Mickey Mouse, who started getting votes in 1932, shortly after he became popular, and has and is still getting votes today. Obviously, he embodies a certain irreverence that uh, and snarky snarkiness that is is uh, what you want in a write-in candidate. <laughs> so like Mickey Mouse could do this job. Yeah, it's so funny that in New York in 1932, Mickey Mouse and Al Capone each got a vote. And here in 2016, I believe these were the records are from in Chicago, Al Capone and Mickey Mouse still getting votes. And um, there was in this article, it mentioned that Georgia still counts all the faulty ballots, even though their candidates could never win. So they are still counting in 2013 the write in votes. And last year, Mickey Mouse got 70 votes in the state's 10th congressional district. 70. 70 and 45 in the water reclamation <laughs> district <laughs> vote. And, and you know, I talked to some judges. It's after, since some article came out, some election judges wrote in to me, and they're like, Monica, it's true that we don't have to count them, but we do have to compare them against people who filed declarations of intent. So these, these jokesters, they are a pain in our butt still because they're adding work. And I guess it would make sense that you should have to compare it. Did this person file a declaration of, of um, intent? But otherwise, they don't get counted. So Cam Davis had to file a declaration of intent for the water reclamation district, and everybody had to check for his name uh, on all these things. Or some variation of his name. They accepted more than 137 variations, including Clam Davis. That is, I think that's pretty generous. (laughs) (laughs) The, The 137 variations is 
a lot on a on a guy's name. You would think, well, here we've got to be accurate, but they went with 137 different versions of Cam Davis. Yeah, if the judge felt like this person was trying to say Cam Davis, even Clam Davis, then then he'd get credit for it. All right. Um, where else? Uh, there's some interesting international aspects of this. We've we've had Mickey Mouse uh, go global with some of his stuff. He was he's been counted for votes in Sweden, lots of places. Still vote Mickey Mouse. Yeah, it's amazing. And uh, I, I don't know if you want to talk about who who else. Uh, these Swedes write in, but uh, I was kind of surprised. They do have quite a sense of humor. Yeah, lay it on me. Oh, I, I think maybe you want to read them. All right. <laughs> Some of them are odd. Uh, they they went with Mickey Mouse, Harry Potter. They also went with the creative uh, Masturbators for Peace. I don't know that party. I, I've never heard of them. And the Small Car and Intoxicating Liquor Federation is also popular in Sweden. The anti-sleeping policeman party. I would join that. <laughs> your mother. Now, say, see, they got your mother. We got quite a few your mothers. I don't know if that means that people like your mother or if it's some sort of Yo vulgarity. Mama. Yeah. We, we got some vulgarities. You know, we got the usual D's nuts. Um, my butt will fart. A-hole. Um, doctor. D-I-C-K. Things like that. You know, Chicagoans. I see. Um, Joey Buttafuoco was popular in 2005. <laughs> there was, uh, there's a lot of uh, things. And the historical ones are fun. In 1988 in DuPage County, voters went for Frank Zappa, Moon Zappa, uh, Ted Koppel, Nancy Reagan. That, those are uh, good old time capsule feelings. E.T. Yeah, and I think if nothing else, they should keep those to sort of capture the zeitgeist of the period, because I think that's what these jokesters go for. And when I talked to an expert who kind of looks at this, he felt like, you know, some of them actually showed concern, because some people took the time saying to, to write, I don't know. Uh, we had 182 for no one and none. In Spanish, we got ninguno. We got, you know, people really trying to say, I don't understand this race. Some people said, you know, I don't care. I don't know. I don't be view, best candidate, someone not bias, uh, least corrupt, best woman, uh, don't really know, impeach Trump, <laughs> most experienced. Someone uh, tweeted in at us that, that, that this year we should be using no billionaires. For... Right, right. There were a lot of um, please, uh, please not Trump. I noticed that uh, an election judge wrote you and said in 2016 they bumped into a God help us all for write-in for president of the United States. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, we got a lot of statements, uh, which I think, you know, people thought that some sort of official person is going to read this. Someone not crooked. This department needs cleaning. What do you want from me? What does this even mean? What does this person do? <laughs> you pick. Not the incumbent. No weirdos. The, the civic responsibility is so enormous. So, so if you're thinking of going in there and writing one of these goofy write-in votes, you're probably going to write your own name, this is what we're told, or your pal's name. No one's going to count it, Okay. WBEZ's Monica Ang recently looked into the snarky write-in protest vote for Curious City and for listeners who were also disappointed that we now kind of chuck them and don't keep them for posterity. Thanks for joining us. I hope, we, I hope our snarky vote is down today and people are voting meaningfully in Chicago's mayoral election. Civic responsibility. Thanks. 
Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the global city legacy of Mayor Rahm Emanuel. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Today, Chicago chooses a new mayor winding down two terms held by Rahm Emanuel. It's the first time since 1983 there isn't a clear favorite to win. For the last several decades, Chicago mayors have talked about how Chicago is a global city. Several of the candidates this time around have challenged that notion, suggesting it's elitist. Last September, when Rahm Emanuel announced he wouldn't seek re-election, WBEZ politics reporter Becky Vivi asked the outgoing mayor what global priorities his successor shouldn't dismiss. I'm hoping my I'm gonna, I'm hoping my predecessor does not, or successor rather does not eliminate the architectural biennial. It brings people from all over the world, culturally, to this city, in a place that it shines globally. It's a great way to show this city. Uh, but here's what I would say. Great, Chicago's a great world-class city, and it's unique on a couple levels. We are the only internal city that's a global city. You think of New York, it's on the coast. You think of Los Angeles, on the coast. Name me another global, world-class city inter- inside the 48. Doesn't exist. Why? <clears throat> yes, the aviation system transportation system. We have more universities than any other city in the United States but Boston. And we have more cultural institutions than any, almost any other city except for New York, like 280 of them, from museums to libraries to theaters to music venues. And then when you, and we have the most diversified economy and the most, and second most competitive in North America and depending on listing, ninth, eighth, or seventh worldwide. And when you combine the intellectual, cultural, and economic powerhouse, that's what makes Chicago a global city. But probably the fourth I should add to that is we have people from all continents. 140 languages spoken in our public schools. I know that. And so, I know you know that because I repeat it all the time. Uh, you knew it before. I knew before I, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's true because you studied that education. But so, that makes Chicago unique. And if you think about it, I've studied this. So, A.T. Kearney, economist, IBM, always come up with a global listing. 100 most competitive global economies. Chicago is, with New York, is the only... New York and Chicago are always in the top 10 worldwide. We're number two globe uh, in North America, nine, eight, or seven worldwide. But here's what's interesting. Of the top 10, Chicago is the only one on the top 10 list of the top 100 
that is not that country's financial or political capital. So London is on it. You got Westminster, you know, et cetera. Berlin's on it. You got the Reichstag there, and you've got, obviously, financial. Tokyo's on it. Now, why is Chicago, that is not, thank God we don't have either Washington, D.C. or Wall Street, but it is one of the top ten worldwide. It's the only one that is not the financial or political capital, yet is seen as one of the most competitive economies in the globe. And to me, that's an amazing story about Chicago. And it's a very special thing we have. And we got to keep nurturing it. And so understanding our cultural, our academic, and our economic, and our transportation, and then ultimately our people, create Chicago's global presence. That's Chicago's Mayor Rahm Emanuel, and let's talk about what kind of future Chicago has as a global city. With me is Juliana Kerr. She's director of the Global Cities and Immigration portion of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Nice to see you, Juliana. Hi. And Juliana uh, helped launch the Chicago Council's uh, Chicago Forum on Global Cities, and they've got a new report out, uh, Chicago's Global Strategy, and um, it's a great big thick report they've been working on for three years. Also on the line with us is Carrie Leiderson, co-director of the Social Justice News Nexus, a fellowship program at Medill at Northwestern University. And Carrie's the author of Mayor 1% and the Rise of Chicago's 99%. Thanks for joining us, Carrie Leiderson. Yeah, thank you. Um, Julianne, I wanted to ask you first about the kind of skill set that mayors have about uh, these days. And, you know, Rahm Emanuel comes in with all these statistics and he's got these ideas and he's uh, almost like some sort of ambassador for uh, city cutting deals, wheeling, dealing. Uh, he was in Asia recently with the dozens of business leaders. And uh, this is part of the portfolio of what it means to be a mayor these days. Most people think it's a little more down to earth or it feels like uh, it's down to earth sometimes, but there's some kind of big thing that goes on out there. 2008 was kind of the, the big moment that uh, the United Nations had published. You know, most of the world's population is now living in cities rather than in rural areas. And so this focus on cities and governing cities is changing. Um, mayors today of the major global cities, and there's there's really only about 100 or so that are really these, these global capitals of the world that are changing our understanding of the global economy, of social uh, and, and political policies. Um, they're changing the course of history in many ways. And so they're, they're more than mayors of uh, just their jurisdiction, but they're an ambassador. They're the representative. They're uh, engaging on a global stage in ways that they hadn't been asked to or been called upon in maybe decades before this. And Carrie Leiderson, what do you think about um, the skill set that mayors have and that Rahm Emanuel brought to the job that the next uh, candidate might want to have? Part of it is just defining global cities, and I think one of the things that characterizes the big global cities we're talking about is um, really innovative and amazing infrastructure and obviously trade and cultural capital and places where Chicago's been amazing and, and Rom has obviously brought a lot to the city. But, you know, these cities all tend to have also vast disparities of wealth, a lot of the other global cities more than Chicago, but that's obviously been one one of the characteristics of Chicago for a while, and people feel like it's um, gotten worse in a lot of ways 
during Rahm's tenure and that even as he's really promoted the city as a, a global center for trade and culture and um, business that immigrants who you know actually make up who speak those 140 languages a lot of the the working class immigrants and then just the um, native born you know regular local Chicagoans don't really have access to all the things that make Chicago an exciting global city so the idea that mayors from all around the world are discussing how how to address their violence and healthcare access and equity and infrastructure um, that works for everyone. And they're sharing ideas from Medellin and Mumbai and Chicago. I mean, that's really exciting. And I know that Ram has been involved in those conversations, but I feel like people don't see whatever he's learning in those conversations. They, do, they don't see it playing out on the ground and really making things better. So, you know, I would hope that that would be something that the new mayor will be really strong on. Um, what, what do you think about some of the challenges? Because the optics can look bad going after corporate clients, and it seems like that is where Mayor Emanuel had a, had a more difficult time. He, he kind of seems better at the global cities thing and maybe not as good as the, on the down-to-earth stuff. To be able to pay for all these services that we want to invest in and we need to invest in for the residents, um, you need that economic vitality. And that's where the focus on bringing in investments, tapping into those global markets uh, is so important because if you don't have that, you can you can really drop out of a race that makes it a poor place for everyone. You know, when we define global cities and we look at the, the research, it's not about choosing, you know, local problems and fixing those or engaging and expanding your global reach. It's not about either or. It's about figuring out that virtuous circle so that you can invest locally and have the strengths and the assets that you need so that you're better positioned to tap global markets and attract the tourism and attract those investments, but also then to use those new resources and reinvest in the institutions that you need to do here locally that serves everyone. We don't seem to have the virtuous circle necessarily. (laughs) I mean, it, uh, it seems like the people who have done well do well. Yeah, it certainly seems that way, and people um, have gotten the feeling even more so that it's that way with with Ram as opposed to in the past. And you know, you look at before global cities were even so much a concept when there were so many good union jobs and good middle class jobs in Chicago and the Midwest as a regional capital. It seems like there could be this virtuous circle. I think it, we're certainly not there now, and how much power a mayor has to make that happen. Um, I know it's a complicated thing. But when Rom goes to Asia with all these top donors, it just furthers the appearance that it's about buying access with him and that if you're someone who just wants to talk about how to make your neighborhood better and how to avoid your school closing, you're not going to get that access even in Chicago, no less taking an international trip with him. Yeah, I was reading the the Chicago Tribune article where uh, the reporter was trying to suss out exactly who went on the trip to Asia with him and why they were there. And um, some seemed to be uh, just close donors and friends of Rahm Emanuel. Others seemed to have, you know, real business dealings that they had to do. And it it does seem a little um, murky at times. Uh, Chicago's often talked about as a public-private partnership place. Uh, that sometimes feels quid pro quo-ish too. How do you feel about those kind of things, Juliana? 
Well, Chicago is definitely uh, sought after by cities around the world for how to engage your civic and business leadership in the quality of life of the city. Uh, and looking at Millennium Park and how it was built and invested in is just one example that you know mayors from around the world come to Chicago to study the examples. Uh, resources and funding is a challenge that every city is facing, and so trying to figure out how to partner with the other assets in your city to make those improvements is huge. What about bringing corporations to the city? The Rahm Emanuel uh, put an emphasis on this, was very successful at it, and it brings um, some source of revenue to the cities. Other people say, well, they get too big a break and it doesn't help the little guy. I mean, it's a mix. I I don't think there's anything. It seems like only positives in bringing new corporations and corporate headquarters to town. And that brings, you know, it brings new talent. It brings new people. It increases the property tax base. But that doesn't necessarily help the people who are struggling and and who are in the uh, lower income, marginalized neighborhoods right now. So you need things to help them, too. And, you know, Ram has done some things like the, the sick day ordinance and the minimum wage ordinance that will help those workers. And, you know, he could do a lot more with policy that would affect the corporations already here and not just the flashy corporate headquarters, but just the way chains and, you know, uh, warehousing operations and all the things that we already have, the way that they pay and treat their workers, that will presumably have, you know, also a a big, like, trickle-up effect and really help the communities, you know, the ones that are in the news for the violence and and the the bad press that um, takes away from Chicago's shining global city image. So I think I feel, and and I think a lot of civic leaders feel like he should be putting much more emphasis on that, along with bringing the corporate headquarters and the the high-profile global companies. Carrie Leiterson is author of Mayor 1% and the Rise of Chicago's 99%, and Juliana Kerr is with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. We're talking about Chicago as a global city. We're going to be back in a moment and expand the conversation and talk a little bit about climate change and other things. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about Chicago as a global city and the future of it after Rahm Emanuel as mayor. With me is Juliana Kerr, Director of Global Cities and Immigration at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Carrie Leiterson's on the line with us. She's co-director of the Social Justice News Nexus at Medill's uh, Northwestern University. Is there a quality that is so economic and so economically driven that it it bleeds over into um, something like education where you think, well, there's an economic solution to the public schools? You know, if it's an economic virtuous circle, it's, it's, it's always economic and, instead of public policy oriented. Does, that, does any of that make sense? Mm-hmm. That 
I, I feel like that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of conflict with the teachers union and Rahm Emanuel. And I know Chicago has this partnership with Mexico City and, and a lot of interaction with Mexico in general. And, you know, at least in Latin America, teachers unions um, historically and, and now are extremely powerful. So, you know, I think it's not a, a given that the neoliberal um, approach and that, like, say, with education specifically, that privatization is the answer. I mean, some of these global cities are social democracies where they're not privatizing education. So, you know, I feel like there'd be a lot to learn. Um, if we're talking global cities, I'd like to see them, you know, looking harder at the models in education and, and other sectors um, that are happening and, and have worked or have involved centers of power, you know, in other, in other global cities that are different than what they're trying to do. You know, it's interesting. President Trump uh, always brings up Chicago as this crime-ridden place. It almost seems to be a political battle uh, that you're trying to depict Chicago as a bad place because it's a it's a place where your political opponents are. So it um, there's a funny thing that goes on with the the, the violence and the reputation thing. Uh, Juliana, do you have some thoughts about that? Uh, yeah, the you know the the violence in Chicago is um, obviously horrific and and needs to be addressed. Uh, I, there are lots of organizations, um, both neighborhood organizations, the University of Chicago's Crime Lab, the City of Chicago itself, looking at long term strategies of how to reduce the the homicide rate. Um, these are you know there's no silver bullet. That's the first thing that they always say, but. Thinking of Chicago as an urban laboratory where cities come together and address real problems and, and come up with real solutions and exchanging ideas, um, that's where I think that the global city factor really is, a, is an important piece of the, the Chicago's engagement with the world. Working with cities like Cali and Colombia or Rio de Janeiro and Brazil and saying, what, did, what have you been doing? You know, what's working in your city? And, um, and trying to figure out which, you know, what context works, what uh, interventions work and where to make those most strategic investments. Um, these are these are long-term goals. And whether or not it you know affects companies, I mean the data, you know, it's it's certain neighborhoods. Um, most of the companies are still interested in the quality of life factors that Chicago offers, you know, kind of the big picture of the city. And um, when they're trying to attract talent and and the, the people who want to work in these places, um, Chicago really does thrive on all of these other metrics and indicators of cultural vibrancy and the restaurant scene and um, the public transportation system, which compared to European standards is, you know, <laughs> probably not as uh, on par, but compared to other American cities, I mean, it's a really advanced uh, public transportation. So there's a lot of other quality of life factors that attract um, investments to the city. Carrie Leiterson, uh, do you have some thoughts about community development? You know, I feel like the last answer by Juliana really resonated with me and to me kind of summed up this whole discussion because with the crime, I mean, um, you know, what Juliana was mentioning just kind of underscores what a big divide we do have in Chicago where these global companies coming in, you know, it's highly unlikely that talent that they're bringing in would um, live in the neighborhoods where gun violence is bad or ever be affected by the gun violence and you know you look at cities like Cali and Rio where that's even more the case and you know there they go to great lengths to keep the poor people away from the um, people with more resources and you know their economies kind of depend on um, that internal uh, you know sort of militarization so you know we certainly never want to get to that point in Chicago and ideally I think Humboldt Park is a perfect example of how a community that 
um, you know, has over the years um, struggled, had many residents who are struggling economically and has had its share of violence. Um, how really amazing community organizing has just done so much to help people stay in the community and benefit from the, um, you know, in investment and from increasing political power. And, you know, I think that's a perfect model for how ideally we could bring the neighborhoods together and, and have everyone um, benefit from, you know, this investment and these great amenities that are happening. Carrie Leiterson is co-director of the Social Justice News Nexus, a fellowship program at Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern. She's also the author of Mayor 1% and the Rise of Chicago's 99%. Thanks for joining us, Carrie. And thanks for joining us, Juliana Kerr, director of the Chicago Global Cities and Immigration Project at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. You can look up their report on Chicago Global Strategy, and uh, they've been working on it for several years. Good to see you, Juliana. Thank you so much for having us. Tomorrow on WBEZ, we're going to be hearing a lot from President Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen. He is testifying before Congress uh, behind closed doors today and in public tomorrow. And we will carry his uh, remarks before Congress from 9 to 3 tomorrow on WBEZ and hear about uh, tax fraud, racist language, and all the rest. Hope you can stay tuned tomorrow to WBEZ and hear what Michael Cohen has to say. W or Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering the program today. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. It's 12.59 here and now is coming up next. And from the WBEZ Newsroom, campaign finance records show that the 14 candidates for Chicago mayor raised a total of nearly $29 million as of yesterday. We'll get some more details coming up. Stay with us. Let's do a little financial crisis history. All right, up first, the savings and loan scandal of the late 80s, early 90s. Collectively, we got over a 1,000 felony prosecutions just in cases designated as major by the Justice Department. I'm Kai Rizdal. Now, how does that compare to the 2008 crisis? We'll tell you next time on Marketplace. This afternoon at 4.30 and 7 on WBEZ. WBEZ HD, w, Chicago, WBEQ HD Morris, WBEK Kankakee, W219CD Elgin, and always on the WBEZ app, 23 degrees at 1 o'clock.